Well, if you would again, uh, take out your Bibles. Let's turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we will be reading uh, and looking at verses 35 through 48. John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We thank you, O God, that you, O Jesus, are the bread of life. And we pray now, God, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. May we see Jesus today. May we understand and grow and know Christ in deeper, greater ways. And that if there are some here that don't know Christ, that their eyes would be open, that they would rest, find their rest in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there is an unsatisfied hunger and an insatiable thirst. A hunger and thirst which is unquenchable but from one source. This emptiness, which many feel, and it seems that this emptiness is larger or at least more noticeable this time of year. Many try to fill that emptiness with the things of this world. But there is an emptiness. But what the things of the world cannot satisfy, the Lord can satisfy. The emptiness which the unbeliever feels in life is a result of their not knowing their Creator and their God. Now for the Christian, we, we have this sense of emptiness because we forget 
We forget our status as the adopted children of the King of Kings. Many of the people in Jesus' day were feeling this. For some, they did not know God, not really. Certainly they knew about him, but the Messiah they wanted was not the sort of Messiah which Jesus was turning out to be. They wanted someone who would take up their causes. They wanted someone who would provide for their needs. Well, as we pick up in the narrative again in John's Gospel, we find ourselves in the middle of what is often called the bread of life discourse. Jesus had, on a previous day, taken five loaves and and two fish, and he had fed 5,000 men. And having seen this miracle, the people desired that, that, that he would become their king. Jesus then crosses to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to Capernaum. And then looking forward uh, to verse 59, we see that at least for a portion of what's going to happen here, he's teaching in the synagogue there. Now, our present text is framed by two, or by these, uh, on, on both sides, it's framed with these simple words which act as something of a, a bookends to the discourse. The claim of Christ, the crux of the matter Simply this, I am the bread of life. Now, what does Jesus mean by this metaphor? I am the bread of life. The confusion abounds as much today as it did in Jesus' day. In saying this, Jesus was claiming to be the one who imparts and sustains life. But this isn't just any sort of life. This is spiritual life. This is eternal life. Just as physical bread sustains the body, gives nutrients, so it is that Jesus nourishes the soul. This was a point which the crowd, to which he was speaking, did not seem to understand. They were wanting more physical bread from Jesus. In their minds, if he was to be the one Moses had promised would come, the Messiah, they were willing to accept that, but they wanted signs like Moses provided. They wanted bread from heaven. Their minds were fixated on the transient and intangible. And so Jesus speaks plainly to them. They wanted bread. He was there, standing before them, he, was the, he is the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is where we pick up in verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, here we come to the first of the seven I am statements of John's gospel. Um, most of you are aware of the I am statements of uh, the gospel of John. This statement connects, as we said last time, to Isaiah chapter 55 and the promised salvation which would come from the Lord. The invitation to come, all who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come, buy, eat, and drink without money and without price. The fact is that every human being has this spiritual hunger within them. There's a spiritual hunger. Every every person outside of Christ has an emptiness in their middle. This can be viewed from a variety of angles. In the Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis wrote of men without chests. That is, men who have no center, no, no heart. Those who hold to no absolute truth. 
There is in our world a moral decay which has been there since the fall of mankind in the garden. Humanity, in its commitment to autonomy, that is self-rule, has sought after death instead of life. This is what self-rule brings. Not life, it brings death. This empty center that can, be, can also be described as a hunger, a thirst, which needs to be satisfied. And so the world seeks to fill the emptiness in all sorts of ways. Other than the one thing which does satisfy, and that is God himself. What you and I need, beloved congregation, is the bread of life. For only Christ satisfies that which is lacking in us. What we need is the Lord. We need our Creator. We need our God. And Jesus came to set the captives free. This is what we're celebrating. is the birth of this one who had come to set the captives free. Jesus came, beloved, to bring life out of death. He can... As the Savior, he came as a Savior who would give himself at the cross as the perfect sacrifice so that you and I may have life. He came to bring true and lasting satisfaction because he is the bread of life. He is the bread come from heaven. Now the problem was that the people Jesus was speaking with here were focused again on the external. They were focused on the physical. They weren't thinking about this in the spiritual sense. They suffer from the same sort of problem as the world does today. The same problem that you and I have at times. Their interest in Jesus was centered on what Jesus could provide for them. As we'd seen already before, they wanted bread. And when, challenged, when challenged in their presuppositions and told not to work for that which perishes, they ask, well, what are the works of God that we, mu- that we must do? What can we do? How can we work? They wanted a sign from Jesus to validate their belief in him. And so they mentioned the manna that their fathers had eaten in the wilderness. Again, they're focusing on the external and on the natural world. And so Jesus explains The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. To which the people respond, sir, give us this bread. The continual misunderstanding of the people in mind, Jesus again speaks clearly. He is the bread of life. This is a claim which Jesus will repeat again. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And Jesus is not speaking of literal food. He's speaking of satisfaction. He's thinking of the hunger, the hungry and thirsty person who is seeking not food, but seeking righteousness. Those who come to Jesus find themselves satisfied in Him, just as one may come and eat delicious food and be satisfied. So it is those who feed upon Christ and His righteousness. They will have their fill. This doesn't, of course, preclude the need for continual feeding. Following Christ is a lifetime activity. But what is being talked about here is the completeness of what Christ offers. Only Christ truly satisfies that which our, our souls long for. 
The language that is used here anticipates what Jesus will say later on in verse 53, where he says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Again, Jesus is, is using a metaphor. He's actually he's mingling metaphoric language with non-metaphoric language. Jesus is the bread of life, but it's not literal eating that he's talking about, but in coming to him, which causes one to no longer hunger. Jesus is not talking, is, 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 it's not drinking, we speak about drinking, it's not physical drinking, it's believing in him, which causes a person no longer to thirst. The eating and drinking served to point to the acts of coming to him and believing in Christ. So establishing the metaphors here helps to make what Jesus says later of eating his flesh and drinking his blood make better sense. But the people, again, were focused so much on the outward, so much on the tangible. So they really, they're focusing on this is because they had one basic problem, really, and that is unbelief. The problem was unbelief. Verse 36, he said, they say, but I say, but I, Jesus said, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You've seen me, but you don't believe. Just as Jesus had charged the citizens of Jerusalem with unbelief, and so now he does with the citizens or his fellow, the fellow Galileans. They don't believe. That's their problem. The people that experienced Jesus, sure, in one sense they had seen him, right? They'd physically seen him, and yet they had not truly seen him. They had seen his works, they'd heard his teaching, and yet they continually refused to believe. What they had seen of Jesus was to them a powerfully gifted man who could work miracles, right? Well, they liked that the, this, this man could, you know, multiply bread and multiply fish. This is, this is great, they think. They'd seen a gifted man. They saw a man who was a potential king. We would love this guy to be our leader. What they did not see, though, was the Son of God. They did not see the Son of God. They did not recognize Jesus for who he really is. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords who, per, who represent the Father's words and works perfectly. They witnessed the signs, but they did not see what the signs signified. They didn't see what those signs pointed to. Why is this? How could these people witness the signs with their physical eyes? You know, they saw the multiplication of bread, the multiplication of these fish. They saw these things with their own eyes. Why had some come to believe in Jesus, seeing the signs and wonders performed, and yet others didn't believe? They didn't see. One might begin to wonder... Is the saving mission of God being thwarted by a stiff-necked, dense-headed people? Listen, there is no sense in which the saving purposes of God can be frustrated. There is no sense in which the saving purposes of God could be frustrated or thwarted. God is not like you and me whose plans can be thwarted. The answer to the question of why some believe while others do not is actually provided for us in verse 37. 
some, perhaps many in our own day, do not like the answer. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Here in this one verse in John chapter 6, Jesus gives the answer to the theological controversy which exists over the doctrine of divine election. He speaks here of those who come to him, respond to him, receive him, embrace him, place their trust in him, and how they're unable to do that. Those who come to Christ as Savior are those whom the Father has given to him. Those who the Father have given will never be cast out. The Father's redemptive purposes are accomplished by the Son. He has given to the Son all those who will come to Him. And as the second part of the the verse then tells us, those who are in Christ will not be driven away. This stands in contrast to all others. Those who have not been given by the Father that is, those not eternally elected, will never come, in fact, are incapable of coming, and certainly will be cast out on the last day. Those who God has determined to save will be saved, and those who are not, will not. Now, frankly, this is not all that complicated. It is the clear teaching of Scripture in multiple places, and yet it is controversial. And the reason it's controversial, I will submit to you, is that it is distasteful to some. It seems unfair. Shouldn't everyone have a chance? How could God be considered to be good and sovereign? Some wonder. The Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 3, by the way. May God be true and everyone else a liar. What an answer, huh? God is good and he is sovereign over all things, including our salvation. You see, if we're being honest to say that God is not fair in saving some and not others, essentially what we're doing is charging God with injustice. We're saying, well, God's unjust. Man's inability to choose in no way makes God unjust. In fact, what many fail to grasp is that humanity has already chosen. They chose to rebel against a holy and righteous God. But God in his marvelous and infinite grace has chosen to save some. But he has not chosen to save all. Romans chapter 9, verses 22-23. But what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is why some miraculously believe, while others do not. God demonstrates his love and compassion on some, even as others God impatiently endures. But they were stored up for wrath in the day of judgment. See, the question is not then, why wouldn't God save everyone? Why isn't everybody saved? That's not the question. Rather, why does God save anyone at all? That's really the question. Why would he save you and me? That's the question you can ask yourself. Why would God, because of his amazing and tremendous 
grace. There's not a, one single reason that I or anyone else should be saved. There's no, there's no good reason that I should be saved. But for the grace of God. Therefore, you and I should join with the Apostle John in saying with great awe, as he does in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Oh, it's amazing. What manner of love is this? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, he calls you and me to be his. All that the Father has given to the Son will come to him and will certainly never be cast out. And this does bring us to the next point, and that is the security of the believer. The reason that Jesus will surely persevere all those who, whom the Father has given is seen in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, the entire purpose of the incarnation, uh, that is the Son of God coming down from heaven, being born as a man, taking on flesh. The purpose of the incarnation was not for Jesus to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. And the will of the Father is that the Son would lose nothing that was given to him, but raise it up on the last day. Everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. The idea of looking seems to relate to what Jesus had said earlier. The people had seen, right? They'd seen Jesus, but they had not really seen Him because they didn't believe. All those who do believe, they do see, they will have eternal life. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. There is found here, beloved, a great comfort for the believer. If you are trusting and resting in Jesus Christ, then you, beloved Christian, can be assured that you have eternal life. You can be assured this is the promise of God to you. As a believer, God has determined to save all those who are, he, who are His, who belong to Him. This, is, this perseverance of the saints, which is being presented here, this flows from the free and unchangeable love of the Father and is, it is based upon His immutable decree. Or to put it more simply, God has promised salvation to His elect people. God will not change his mind because he always keeps his promises. And what he has said will indeed come to pass that he has chosen to place his love upon you and me. In Romans chapter 8, uh, the Apostle Paul ponders this truth. In, in, starting in verse 33, we ask, ask this, who, who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And of course, the implication is no one. Right? No one. Nothing. Nothing. 
There is not one thing which can separate the believer from the love of God in Christ. For those who are in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. You have been set free. You have become the adopted children of God because you have been given to the Son by the Father. And this was the will of God for you. And Christ came to do only the will of the Father. You see, one of the major themes that we will find throughout John's Gospel is this theme of divine sovereignty. Here we have this small band of disciples following Jesus. And they were given by the Father, and they will inherit eternal life. Now, of course, we know there is one exception to this, and that is Judas. Who, though he continued with the other disciples and following Christ, had not looked upon Christ and believed. So yes, it is possible for some to sort of follow along and have all the appearances, but not have actually seen and believed. This was Judas. He had continued in unbelief, regardless of the proximity he had to the Lord. Because if Judas had believed, it would have, sh- have shown that he was given by the Father. But he wasn't given to the Son by the Father, and so he didn't believe. Judas, then, is not the exception to the rule. He's the establishment of it. He was not among the elect, but continued in unbelief. And salvation, then, from beginning to end, is the work of the sovereign and gracious God who always accomplishes His will. Now, in response to the teaching of Jesus here, that he's the bread of life from heaven, we see that the Jews began to grumble. But notice that their grumbling was not about divine sovereignty or his statements concerning salvation. They they weren't grumbling about that. They complained that he had said, I am the bread of life who had come down from heaven. And further, there were rumblings about Jesus' origin. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? What does he now say, I come down from heaven? Their difficulty with his statement was that he had come down from heaven. In in effect, the crowd is saying, "No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute here. We know this guy. We know his parents. What does he mean to claim such things? What right does he have to claim such divine origins? We know that he's the builder's son. Who does he think he is? Jesus, though, again, showing his divine power, knowing the grumblings of their hearts among themselves, gives a stern admonition. Do not grumble among yourselves, he says. And then he reiterates and strengthens his previous statement, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's interesting that they, uh, J- Jesus wants to focus in on what the real matter here is. Now there are some people who say things like this, you know, Well, God is a gentleman, and he would never force salvation on anyone who didn't want it. No one, they say, is dragged into heaven against their will. You've all heard things like this, haven't you? I know I have. They'll say things like, you know, God woos them, or perhaps begs them (laughs) to come in. Please, please come into my kingdom. 
But I want you to notice something in the text, and that is the word draw. (laughs) Verse 44. It's a very interesting word. It provides an answer to that objection. The Greek word used here is elko. It means to pull or to drag. It is even sometimes used of magnetic attraction. Now, draw is a good translation. It's like drawing a sword. If you're going to draw a sword out of its sheath, you wouldn't say, now, come, come here, sword. Come, come on out. You know, jump, jump out of the sheath. Right? Or maybe, maybe in our nomenclature, it would be drawing your gun. You're not going to beg your gun to come out of its holster, right? Come, come on out. Oh, please, would you? No. That's ridiculous, right? No, you would pull it out with force. That's the idea, actually, of this word. Now, are people being dragged into the kingdom? Yes! Every single one of us is dragged into the kingdom. Now, from our perspective, it may not seem like this, but that's because your will has been changed. You are transformed by the Holy Spirit. This is regeneration. We talked about this already in John chapter 3. Born from above, or born again. You actually, in fact, if you're a Christian, you want to be in the kingdom, right? But were it not for the Spirit in you, it would be otherwise, wouldn't it? This is not your natural disposition. Your natural disposition is actually unbelief. You see, it isn't that God is simply offering salvation like a salesman trying to hawk his wares. God is like I was this week trying to coax a a kitten out from underneath uh, some shelves in my shop. No, God reaches down into the pit, as it were, and drags us out and rescues us from sure destruction. And aren't you glad that he has? Because, you see, it's not possible for a person to respond to the call of the gospel unless the Father draws him to himself. Again, D.A. Carson, his very helpful commentary, puts it this way, quote, The combination of verses 37 and verse 44 prove that this drawing activity of the Father cannot be reduced to what theologians call uh, previent grace dispensing to every individual for this drawing is selective or else the negative note in verse 44 is meaningless. End quote. It's God who chooses. This is divine election. It is God who draws effectual calling. And the point is that God is the one who is doing the saving. It is God who is doing the choosing. If it was up to us, we would all be doomed wouldn't we? No one comes to the Father unless He first draws him to Himself. And those who are drawn, though they have hope, you have hope of the resurrection. You'll be raised up on the last day. In fact, God will not only draw, but all who are drawn will respond because it is God who will gently and patiently teach his people. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Here, Jesus explains the sort of drawing which the Father does. 
This drawing of the Father is not violent subjugation, but rather gentle teaching, patient teaching. The insights and teachings of God are implanted into the minds and hearts of sinners such that they are illuminated and believe, thus fulfilling the promise of Isaiah 54, 13, that they will be taught by God. All this relates to what Jesus had taught earlier to to the teacher of Israel, to Nicodemus. A man must be born from above in order to be made fit for the kingdom. The transformed believer is taught by God the Father. And this is mediated by God the Son. This is made clear in verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. The Christian's experience of God the Father is mediated through the revelation given through the Son, Jesus Christ. Only the Son has seen the Father. It is through the Son the Father is revealed to you and to me. This, of course, relates to the necessity of the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus. It is by faith in the Son that we have access to the Father. Eternal life then comes by faith. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Giving yet another strong assertive, truly, truly, Jesus repeats what has been said before. Whoever believes, whoever believes has eternal life. Here is an invitation to believe. You need to believe, beloved. And there's a warning against unbelief. If you are in unbelief, if you are uh, committed to autonomy to yourself, you think the things I've just talked about are foolishness, the warning is for you. Don't, Don't continue in unbelief. Believe in Christ. Considering, considered in light of the strong assertions regarding predestination, any pretensions a would-be disciple might have of self-congratulations or of thinking that following Christ is you know, doing him a favor, like, you know, like as if my being a Christian is you know, like, well, God, I'll follow you because you know, I'll do you a favor. No, that, that's, been, that's been utterly destroyed, any presumptions like that. One cannot think that he or she can approach Jesus on their own terms, with their own agenda in mind. Much like the crowds earlier, much like the crowds in the, in the narrative. And, the, and there are many people in our own day that are like this. They, they like the idea of Jesus, but they want Jesus on their terms. And Jesus is pointing out to this crowd, that's a mistake. It doesn't work. You don't get to come to Jesus on your own terms. No, the individual sinner must believe to have eternal life. He or she must trust and rest in Christ Jesus alone. This is, this is only possible at the invitation of God because salvation is on God's terms and not on our own terms. Perhaps we could say it this way. The terms of your unconditional surrender are not negotiated. The great king has already set the terms. He has already put down the rebellion and you may enter the kingdom only on the terms which the king has given to you. Your entrance into the kingdom of God is wholly on the basis of His abundant grace. The sinful human being then must believe. He must trust and rest in Christ. And this must be stressed in the strongest possible way to all. 
And the immediate inheritance and possession that he or she will receive then is eternal life. The great king has already put down the rebellion, but he offers you eternal life. That's that's gracious, isn't it? This is the promise given by God. And all of this, all of this is what Jesus means when he says again, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Here's the other side of the bookend. All that we've looked at today, all of this explains what Jesus means when he says that he is the bread of life. It is only through faith in him that you and I could have hope of eternal life. The gift of eternal life is only possible at the invitation of God. It is only Christ who fills, who satisfies what is lacking in us. Because he is the bread of life. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the truths which our Lord taught here ought to be a great comfort. Are you trusting Christ alone for your salvation? Are you seeking to walk by the Spirit and newness of life in Him? You've been animated to this end by the triune God. This ought to comfort you. This ought to comfort you that God has done this for you. His covenant promises which he made with the patriarchs, the promises he made to Israel as a nation, the rescue which, has, which was played out in bondage in Egypt was fully realized in Jesus Christ. The Lord has put his law on our hearts. He has transformed a people who are not a people into being his people. By his word and spirit, he has gently taught us to know him and to grow in him. He has matured us. He has raised us up and will raise us up in glory on the last day. What Jesus has described is the new life which is given only through him. It is he who nourishes us. It is he who strengthens us because he is the bread of life. If you do not know Christ Jesus as your Savior then our encouragement for you is that you would know him. See Jesus today. Believe in him. Perhaps in God's good providence, he has brought you here today to hear this good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. Perhaps through the preaching of the word and by his Holy Spirit, he is calling you to faith. And so we would urge you to trust in Christ. He is the only hope which a sinner has. In him is found true life. Again, because he is the bread of life. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word, for the blessings. We're thankful that it is you, O God, who saves us. That is not simply the possibility of salvation, which we could, we could thwart somehow, because the fact is, I know I would mess it up. But God, you are so gracious and so good. That you've taken a rebellious, stiff-necked people such as us and made us to be your people by faith. That you, have, by your Spirit, have transformed our hearts. That even now you are teaching us and nourishing us and filling that which is lacking, quenching that thirst and that hunger in our souls. Thank you, O oh God, for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.